Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. And welcome to Winnipeg's Inner City. Yeah, the inner city to me is quite a large area. Uh, It's not only the North End community that we're in today, but it also takes into account the West End area of Winnipeg and uh, the north and south side of the bridges. Some have defined the inner city as a problem to be solved. So there was this disparaging story about what the inner city was. The inner city was sort of everything that like the new suburbs weren't, right? So the new suburbs were safe and healthy and, and modern and wholesome and moral, and the inner city was not that. But for many, the inner city is home, a place to defend. Activists from this area started to talk about the inner city as a sort of community of struggle. And over the last century, Winnipeg's inner city has also been a kind of incubator for ideas that have migrated across the country. Winnipeg at that time had become kind of a hub for all these different ways of thinking. And the first Friendship Centre, as you mentioned, first Indigenous-run affordable housing organization, all these things, they were then copied right across the country, these ideas. What was it about Winnipeg, do you think, that gave rise to these innovative ideas? I think that my take on that would be the fact that it was us women leading the charge. Us women saying things that, no, this is how you take care of children. This is how you do do things. This is how you service our people. Today, the idea of the inner city and the fight to define the future of Winnipeg. What does Winnipeg mean to you? (laughs) What a question. Uh, Well... It's where I was born and raised. It's my home. It's also something I'm always trying to think about and uh, write about. And I always miss it when I'm gone. Uh, <laughs> that's, I guess, that's what it means to me personally. Okay. My name's Owen Taves. I'm a geographer. I wrote a book called Stolen City, Racial Capitalism and the Making of Winnipeg. And I teach a course called History of Winnipeg's Inner City at the University of Winnipeg. The history that we're going to talk about shows like a little bit of the character of the city in terms of like really being a fighting and and caring community willing to fight for each other because of how much people care about each other here. Well, for me, it's been my home. Like I've lived here. My parents came here in the 19, just after World War II, 1940s. My uh, mom came in from the Interlake First Nations community and my dad came in from a, just a town out of Winnipeg, Minnedosa. He grew up as a Métis person there. Not very many people, not many people, Métis people lived in that town. I looked at the census, the earlier census, and they were the only Métis family in there. And 
there's a little column there that asks you what race you are. Mm. And there, my little family had R down listed. And I thought, what the heck is R? And R meant the red people. <laughs> or if you were Chinese descent, you mm. had a, a Y for the color. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Not yeah. too long ago. No. <laughs> well, my name is Kathy Mallett, and uh, I live here in Winnipeg. I'm a First Nation person. I'm a member of the Fisher River Cree Nation, and I'm a grandmother of four, mother of two, and just been retired now almost nine years and loving it. <laughs> yeah, that's the crucial part. Mm-hmm. This is the 1960s that I grew up here in Winnipeg, and uh Actually, we lived in this part of town uh, in the North End, uh, not too far from here. Mm-hmm. Went to school, a couple schools around here, and uh, there wasn't a lot of our people living in Winnipeg at the time, and there was hardly any services for our people at that time. Today, Winnipeg has the largest urban Indigenous population in Canada. There's well over 90,000 of us that live here now and a thriving network of community organizations and activism, a network that Kathy Mallett has played a pivotal role in building. You've been described as an inner-city builder. I wonder if you could talk about what the words inner-city mean to you. First of all, I think when I see when I hear builders like a beaver, right? <laughs> building a beaver dam or something. <laughs> it's kind of like that because, you know, you don't want it to to, you know, sprout water out, so you got to build something there to (laughs) hold it back. But, yeah, the inner city, to me, uh, is quite a large area. Uh, It's not only the North End community that we're in today, but it also takes into account the West End area of Winnipeg in that area and uh, the north and south side of the bridges. I mean, it's it's, it's a very large area, and there's a huge train, uh, you know, rails there, you know, that divide our our north and south as well. The rail line is crucial for understanding the geography of Winnipeg. It's also impossible to miss. The Canadian Pacific Rail Line crosses Winnipeg in several places, hiving off the north end. Cuts people off from, like, the rest of the city. Like, you have to walk to one of the bridges or tunnels to get you know, downtown. So it's a big deal. And it's sim- there's, like, a, a, all kinds of symbolism, too, like, of course, that we could talk about, like, going back to the, the, like, first, like, industrialization of the city. As new commuter suburbs boomed in the 1950s and 60s, governments abandoned industrial and working-class neighborhoods on either side of the tracks. For Owen Taves, the idea of the inner city is intimately connected to that process. I define it as a place that was produced materially through this process of organized abandonment, like including but not limited to suburbanization and the, the city's sort of like massively unequal um, spending on the suburbs versus the inner city. I think about it in terms of how activists from this area started to talk about the inner city as a sort of community of struggle and a way that different neighborhoods in the city could start to come together and see resemblances between each other and their experiences of organized abandonment 
uh, or political neglect or disregard. Those of us who don't think about inner cities all the time, which we should, think of it as a as a geographical boundary, boundary place. It's not. That's not what you're describing. Right. Yeah. So I'm inspired by Vijay Prashad's work on the the third world in this sense. So Prashad talks about the third world as not a place but a project. So he's talking about different countries with you know often colonial histories in that kind of decolonial part of the 20th century, finding each other and coming together and forging a sort of like political space for themselves in the context of the Cold War, sort of like the non-aligned movement and not taking sides. So I think about the inner city that way. I met Owen outside of a building called Rossbrook House, where we began our walking tour of Winnipeg's inner city history. In 1978, then-Mayor Robert Steen approved a plan to build an overpass between the North End and the neighborhood just south of the rail line. They were going to tear down this whole neighborhood, including Rossbrook House here, which is a very well-regarded, respected, long-time neighborhood institution, 24-hour drop-in for children. When the community here was trying to get together to fight um, this plan, this overpass plan, they named their committee the Inner City Committee for Rail Relocation. So they didn't name it this. This is the Centennial neighborhood. They didn't name it, name it the Centennial Committee, right? Um, or the West Alexander Committee. They they purposely tried to create this inner city identity and connect with other neighborhoods because they saw that plan to destroy this neighborhood as a as an outcome of the systematic disregard for the entire inner city. To me, it's about that process of like creating a new sense of place and a new sense of identity in order to achieve certain things and enable certain kinds of action towards justice. As the name suggests, the Inner City Committee for Rail Relocation, the coalition had a more ambitious goal than just stopping the overpass. So the the other I think interesting or useful thing about learning this history is like learning tactics and strategy. So they said, why do they want to build an expressway and overpass over the rail yards to connect Sherbrooke here with McGregor in the North End? And they said, because the rail yards are in the way. So then they said, what if we move, instead we move the rail yards? People really wanted rail relocation, right? For for a number of reasons. I mean, we could talk about the environmental justice aspect of getting rid of like a hazardous land use. We can talk about the way that it divided people in the North End from the rest of the city. We could talk about it as like a noise hazard, a hazard for children, et cetera, et cetera. And then they started thinking about all the money that's spent on bridges and tunnels, overpasses and underpasses to get cars especially as the city is becoming more and more suburban, to get commuters to the new suburbs as fast as possible. And so they thought, if we move the rail yards, we can save all that public money, and then we can spend that on things that we actually need and build up this neighborhood rather than destroying it. So just just because we weren't there, you weren't there, but just so we have an idea, what would have happened had the plan to build that overpass actually come to pass? Right, well, it's my understanding that they would have essentially like bulldozed the whole neighborhood between uh, Sherbrooke and... Furby, like this is a really long block. Furby sort of is in the middle of this block. So from the the rail yards to Notre Dame, people would have had to move. People's homes would have been destroyed and seized by eminent domain and community places like Rossbrook House. Lots of community spaces would have been destroyed. The entire area would have been destroyed for this expressway. How much do we know about this this movement that happened back then. Like how did how big did it get? Who was involved? Paint the picture right. of what it would have been like. Yeah. yeah, so Sister Geraldine McNamara, who founded Rossbrook House, um, who lived down the street on Ross here, is one of the leaders of the movement. There's an elementary school down the street named after her now. She's a very well-known figure in, in Winnipeg. Here's Sister Geraldine McNamara speaking to the CBC. When the public interest is prejudicially affected by the act or omission 
of a railway, which is, after all, a common carrier or a common danger, whichever way you want to look at it. But when the public interest is prejudicially affected, then that board of um, transport commissioners can recommend to the federal government remedial or amending legislation necessary on any terms the commission feels are adequate to deal with that railway. Right now, the railway hasn't appeared in any of this. The costs are supposed to be borne by three levels of government according to the Rail Relocation Act. The fact remains we're dealing with a common carrier which owns billions in assets. Uh, those assets have been built up over the years through a combination of land grants from the federal government, tax subsidies, tax concessions from municipalities. We are dealing with a company then that has billions in assets and that should be in the position of looking after its own relocation. A city the size of Winnipeg, half the population of Manitoba, cannot have such a clear and present danger in its downtown area. So she was a face of the movement. There were people from Dufferin School, which we might walk past later. So people involved in education in the neighborhood and taking care of children. There were people from the Indian Métis Friendship Center um, involved and other sort of nonprofits. It's actually funny because they, they apparently went door to door. The first thing they did was go to door to door and nobody was interested in fighting the overpass. And then they, they held a public meeting here at Rossbrook House and a couple hundred people came and got super excited and that's how the movement sort of started when people could start to see each other, see their neighbors <clears throat> and see that there was this kind of common concern. But what the moment when you, as you were growing up, you realized, wow, there's a lot that needs to be changed here? Well, I think for me, <laughs> I think the biggest thing is housing. Because my family, we lived in what they term slum, with slum landlords. They were the ones that were, you know, because we faced some discrimination as an Indigenous family, our housing conditions was not very good. My, although my dad fought in World War II, he didn't get a house when he came back. <laughs> and then my mom moved in, you know, to the city uh, at that time period. And uh, there was a lot of, you know, they became renters. And so they lived, we lived in all kinds of housing in this area. We lived in North End and, and over the bridge in the West End. And yeah, I would say the housing was the, the biggest issue for me. It always has been and still is. <laughs> And as a matter of fact, the, the latest project that I'm working on is a research project for Indigenous seniors who need housing. So, you know, that's another part of the work that just doesn't go away. Does it surprise you that that issue has been so enduring through so many years, the housing issue? Well, I think it's because it's really looking at what are the solutions for housing. And I know in for us in the 1980s, we decided we would tackle it, and so we would. We decided to uh, build a housing co-op, and there wasn't that many housing co-ops at that time. There was not even an Indigenous housing co-op, and our co-op was going to be basically for single-parent women, like our women with children, so they have a safe place to live, and uh, that, that was a struggle and a half. I think it took us about four years to to get that project finished. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we do have now uh, a housing co-op just over the bridge, closer to the uh, University of Winnipeg downtown. We decided to to do it a cooperative, a cooperative model. We like that model because it's very much uh, we like how it governs things. You know, people are supposed to be included in everything and ownership too for the co-op, right? And so a lot of us like that. And um, and of course, it was going to be for mostly for single parents with children. I was looking forward to to moving in there. <laughs> point in time <laughs> at the time when when that building was being built there was a lot there was a couple of these rooming houses that were there two large rooming houses I remember the other member and I went in there at one time to go and see what what those rooming houses were like holy mackerel there was cockroaches running around in the daylight I mean cockroaches only come out at night right yes. these guys were running around all over that place and there was a stack of work orders on the wall, I remember, about this thick, hanging there that this place was supposed to be fixed up. You know, and the people that lived there, we talked to some of them, and we brought back the information to our other, other group or other group of people, and we said, look, we got to make sure that these guys have a place to live. We don't want to displace them. And so we did every effort to, to do that. It was kind of an exciting period as well, I think, a lot of times, because a lot of us were involved with uh, so many different kinds of issues at the time. And basically, it was a lot of women. A lot of our women were involved. And not to say that the guys weren't there, but, you know, they were sort of on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to tackle things like the child welfare system, the education system, all these systems that were not reflecting our needs. Yeah. Just to be clear for the audience, when you say we, you mean Indigenous women. Indigenous yeah. women, yes. On the second stop of our walking tour, Owen took me to another place where Indigenous women played a pivotal role in redefining the conversation about the future of the inner city. It's also a site that's connected to the outcome of the rail relocation movement. So we're, we're outside Freight House Community Centre, which is, uh, I believe, there, there used to be sort of like a rail spur line here that was abandoned and then turned into this, this park. We're looking at a football field and a baseball diamond. And then this Freight House uh, was turned into a community centre. What's the story of this place? So, well, I mean, here they, were, they held... <clears throat> okay, so I wanted to talk about the outcome of the rail relocation movement quickly was that they stopped the expressway from happening. They saved the neighborhood, but they didn't make a rail relocation happen. Instead, uh, that movement was, was co-opted, in my view, by a liberal federal politician named Lloyd Axworthy, um, who swooped in. He was actually a provincial MLA, and he said that his federal campaign was an expression of the rail relocation movement, that he saw that people wanted change in the neighborhood, and that's why he ran federally. <clears throat> he became an MP. He became a, a cabinet minister. What he did was, instead of making rail relocation happen, Lloyd Axworthy created something called the Corey Initiative, which was a tripartite, three levels of government plan to quote-unquote revitalize Winnipeg's inner city. 
And this was a kind of a regional planning that had only been done um, in sort of rural places, I believe like in, in the north or in the Maritimes. And this is the first time this kind of planning approach uh, on the part of the federal government was coming to a, an urban setting. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they put a lot of money into shopping malls. Uh, as people realized this was happening in this neighborhood and other neighborhoods in the inner city, people got upset, um, rightfully so because it wasn't their vision for the inner city that was being funded. It was this kind of corporate gentrification agenda and that they weren't benefiting from, right? Like, so this idea that people in these neighborhoods were going to get jobs at building these shopping malls or at these shopping malls, that didn't happen. There was no measurable improvement in people's lives or in, or in the inner city. So what was the response? What did they do about that? So they organized something called the Community Inquiry uh, into Inner City Re Revitalization. Some of those meetings took place here at the Freight House Community Center. So now, this, now that this idea of inner city revitalization was on the table, but it was sort of this corporate gentrification agenda, as articulated by the Quarry Initiative, the community in resistance formulated their own sort of definition of inner city revitalization. And it really like forced them to be a lot more specific than they had been, right? And at this stage, I think it's important to point out that a lot more sort of indigenous women activists and community leaders in the city were involved at this point in the community inquiry, um, more so than had, had been involved in the rail relocation movement. How does that change the movement? Something that's really striking about the final report of the, com the community inquiry, which was published in 1990, is a focus on um, the health and safety of children and indigenous children in particular and they they talk about premature death of indigenous infants and they it's interesting this is you know clearly a completely serious public health issue that they're pointing at but it's interesting that they make this an issue of inner city re revitalization right because that's the kind of concern that's totally not on the core area initiatives agenda they're interested in making the inner city look shiny and people make more money right and they're not interested in children actually uh, surviving and being healthy and safe. And this was at the top of the agenda for the community inquiry. This shift towards prioritizing children's health and safety was influenced by a long-growing fight over child welfare in the city, one in which Kathy Mallett was active. Well, first of all, it, there was a tragic tragic event that happened. A little baby, a Métis baby, died in a foster home, drowned in a bathtub. And it just so happened that her mother was living at the Native Women's Transition Centre, which is here in the North End, and had asked for some help. Wanted to know why this, her baby had, had died. Nobody told her of anything. So Parts of that was through our network of, of talking and finding out about what was going on. We decided to have a conference at the Friendship Center here, and it was called We Care, We Share Conference. And we wanted to bring other people, our people, to come together to talk about the child welfare system and what was going on there. What were they experiencing? It was a real eye-opener for us because they were telling us stories that you know, a lot of their children have, were taken out, out into care, into foster homes. And even some of them were telling us that their, their children were being adopted outside of the country. Wow, when we heard that, you know, it's like, okay, we got we to do something about this. So we formed a, a coalition. We thought, well, you know, we need to uh, talk to the Children's Aid Society because they're the ones that have all the power. They have all the resources. So we had to start meeting with them. And 
they were resisting and resisting, and we had asked for some positions on their board of directors because there was, I think there was one Aboriginal person on there at the time. And a man or a woman? It was a man, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we didn't see any of our people working in the child welfare, in those agencies at the time, that agency at the time. And so we had asked them, okay, we need to be a part. We want to be part of your organization. Let us in. So they said, okay, well, we will give your coalition two spots on the board of directors. And we weren't really that happy with just two positions because our argument was that, hey, half of those children are our kids that are in care right now. But we thought, okay, we'll play your game. We'll take your two positions and we will come to the annual meeting. The general annual meeting is coming up. So the plan was that we would have two of our women from our coalition to become members of the board of directors. And then we would attend the annual meeting and at that time, they would denounce the Children's Aid Society, and we would come and support them. So we hired a bus. We had a, a, a city bus, and we all went onto the bus. I don't know, there must be about 50, 70 of us. I don't know how many of us. We were going to arrive at the Children's Aid Annual General Meeting at a lunchtime, and so the Native Women's Transition Center uh, put together a bag lunch for all of us. And so off we went, and we arrived at the hotel, which is out by the airport, International Airport. And so when we got off the bus, we, <laughs> there was these cop cars were circling the hotel. And so we figured that the Children's Aid folks were the ones that called the police, and they were there. And so <laughs> I remember that we were all coming down this long hallway and I was up at the, at the front there and they had uh, the doors were closed mm. I think I just pushed them open and they sort of flew open and there was like 500 people in that room <laughs> and they're all having their plates and everything you know the tables everything were set and their PR guy comes running out of somewhere he comes running up to me he says Kathy Kathy he says we have t chairs for your your people, they can sit here, they can sit there and over here. And I remember saying, no, no, it's okay. Uh, we'll just sit over here in the back. I said, we brought our lunch. <laughs> We're here to support, you know, yeah. our, our coalition members. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. Wow. Of course, the media was there. <laughs> that must have been quite a scene. Did they cover it? Did they cover the it properly? The covered it and it made national news <laughs> that evening. Yeah. And the, the part that I remember was that the cameras went from the veal cutlets that the folks were eating to our brown bag lunches, you know. Kind of told the whole story. Yeah, that fight resulted in a new model for Indigenous child welfare in Winnipeg. Uh, the Mamawisha Center was the result of the work that we did in the child welfare when we, we butt our heads up against the child welfare system here in Winnipeg. And now that organization is well over, I think it's going to be almost 40 years now. It's still going strong here in the North End. They have other centers all over different places. We struggled with the whole idea of what kind of a service we were going to give to our people, right? We certainly didn't want to be a brown children's aid society. Definitely not. It split our coalition between the mandated agency 
versus the non-mandated agency. That's the big thing that split our us. And I think I mentioned to you that we hadn't talked to each other for like 10 years after that. So it was very, very emotional for us. Lost a lot of sleep. I was with the, the group that non-mandated because to me, it made sense that why would we want to separate children from their families? Why can't we look at some kind of uh, a service where we support the entire family unit? Because to us, at least to me, our families had a lot of strength. It was to build on that strength, not on the weaknesses. The white child welfare system was saying to us, you're weak, you're this, you're that. If you want your children back, you're going to, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. With all these carrots they would put in front of our families, jumping through all the hoops just to get access to their children. And that was not what we wanted. And that mandate would, would do that. We didn't want that. Yet that mandate was being exercised in the rural areas, in the First Nation communities. And now it's causing a hell of a lot of problems out there. So Mama Wichita, we saw it as a, a center that would support our families, non-judgmental, you know, and just working with the strengths, not the weaknesses, looking at that. There was another model that uh, was brought in from Australia, actually from New Zealand, the Maori people. They had a, an excellent model called family group conferencing, which the Mama Wichita practices today. It's a very holistic model. And it's looking at the kids, their strengths, and building on their strengths. The other idea that we had, too, was that even the Mama Wichita's name is this concept of reciprocity. We give to the community, they give back to us. And that relationship, that was the most important thing. You've painted such an incredible scene. What did the presence, the addition of powerful women, uh, you know, advocating for women's and children's issues do to kind of the movement to improve the rights of Indigenous people in this city? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. Yeah. Like I said before, like, the struggle continues. Like, it does not end here. We have young people today protesting in terms of what's happening with that whole landfill issue here that continues and the violence, you know, it's, it just it doesn't quit. And so it's really up to us as grandmothers and mothers to take care of our kids, right? You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. 
They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. The inner city is more than a place. It's also a political idea and a site of struggle. And in Winnipeg, what the inner city means has been fiercely contested. In September 2023, I joined geographer Owen Taves for a walking tour of Winnipeg's inner city history. So we're, we're standing at a place called Logan House, but you know yeah, its well, origin story. Yeah, well, the thing that I, the reason that I like take students here is because this is where the inner city voice community newspaper used to have its offices so the inner city voice actually got a small small grant from the quarry initiative and published a monthly community newspaper to try to develop this idea of a a sort of imagined inner city community Mm -hmm. right so they would cover stories happening in all different different neighborhoods and corners of winnipeg's inner city Uh, and distribute it all across the inner city to get people in North Logan reading about Spence neighborhood, get people in Spence reading about North North Point Douglas, and getting people to see these, again, these resemblances between their neighborhoods and and their experiences. How long did it last? About 10 years. Have Uh, you seen some of the issues yourself? In the, at the the Manitoba archives, I've seen them, yeah. And I ask my students to go read them and, and write a paper based on them. What do you hope they get out of it? Well... The experience I had, re- like first going through these these back issues of the newspaper, was really just like admiration and a- affection for for Winnipeg's inner city. There's lots of humor in the newspaper, right? And again, like caring for each other and like honoring each other. For instance, like there would be so there's lots of like political pieces in in the inner city voice, like raising the idea of prison abolition. Or this was the period when J.J. Harper was murdered by the Winnipeg Police Service in 1988. So there's lots of coverage of that, which of course led to the, the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry in Manitoba, which you know looked at the justice system as a sort of like systemically racist institution. So there's lots of serious articles like that. But then there's also like small pieces about like here's a vigil that this church held for like everybody who's like inadequately housed in in the inner city, right? And they're like lighting candles for for people they know. And then that's beside like an article about expropriating unfit landlords, right? So there's this mix of like radicalism and and militant activism with just like small acts of care and and honoring each other. You say in your class you have your students read inner city activism in Winnipeg as a distinct distinct epistemological traditions. Right. Yeah, for sure. So another thing, another motivation for starting this this community newspaper was not only like building this community, the sense of this inner city community up, but was to provide a counter narrative to what was in the Winnipeg Free Press um, and, uh, and other sort of local media, which was this idea of the inner city as a sort of like delinquent place. So this is in the spirit of this kind of alternative social explanation or tradition of social explanation in the inner city that I, I talk about with students in my class. What I look at to, to start that conversation is a 1978 press conference where people from indigenous leaders in the city from, for instance, the Manitoba Indian Brotherhood and the Indian Métis Friendship Centre are responding to a city planning report that's basically um, blaming the so-called problems of the inner city on uh, indigenous peoples. 
So they're calling out the racism of this of this city report, and they're marshalling this counter explanation, right, for the same kind of like observable characteristics. So they're saying, if we want to look at you know unfit living conditions in the inner city and poverty in the in the inner city, let's look at the actions of landlords. Let's look at the disinvestment of banks. Let's look at the decisions of politicians. Let's look at the re- at why the Neganan plan for Main Street hasn't been funded by the Canadian government, right? Um, these are all the reasons why the inner city is the way it is. So this is that kind of like inner city epistemology that that I think about, and that's definitely what the inner city voice was also sort of a drawing on. Owen Taves just mentioned Neganan. That's an idea that has popped up throughout the decades, a plan to create an indigenous village on North Maine, around the intersection of Higgins and Maine. It's sometimes been described as a kind of Vatican City within the Rome of Winnipeg, one where indigenous people could find all the services they need in one place. Well, you know, that idea has been around long before I was even probably born. No, no, just kidding. (laughs) And you mean the idea of actually making it into more than just a center? Yeah, yeah. That idea, that whole notion of uh, service delivery in the community here uh, has always been there. And that's always, when I first heard about that idea, I thought, wow, that's great. I mean, having uh, services under one roof for all our people to come to and not having to go to this place, that place, and the other place, and to actually get some, some, actually get some service from folks, you know. Kathy Mallett, a longtime organizer and the co-editor of a book called Indigenous Resistance and Development in Winnipeg, 1960 to 2000. In the early 1990s, Kathy Mallett and others became involved in creating the Neganen Center. So when the idea of uh, and don't ask me who was kicking this idea around because the idea was to buy the old CPR railroad station yeah. on Higgins there that was up for sale. Canadian Pacific Railway. Right. And that was up for sale. And I thought, hmm, okay, we, <laughs> I definitely have to get involved with this one. And so uh, I went on the board of directors as a board member, uh, I was very active in all kinds of things to do with that building, recruiting organizations to come and stay in the building and to set up their services in there. It was a lot of work. A lot of people were involved in that whole initiative, you know. Today, the Neganen Center is home to a number of organizations that serve Indigenous Winnipeggers. The larger vision for a whole village or district is still waiting to be realized. Around the time she got involved in taking over the old railway station, Kathy Mallett also became active in the fight for Indigenous control of Indigenous education. Could we talk briefly about um, Children of the Earth High School? Can you, can you talk about the story behind that and, your, again, your involvement in that? Well, we always talked about our having our own schools, our own school system even. And because we all had young children and uh, we knew about these other models that other indigenous people were, were using, like the Little Red Schoolhouse idea down in the United States. So that topic of having our own school school system has been around for a long time in the community here. And 
in the late 1980s into the early 1990s, a lot of folks got more coalesced and in, interested in tackling the education system. The other idea that we thought we would do is to at least get some of our people elected in, you know, these political positions that we thought maybe would help our cause. <laughs> so we ran some people in the city elections. Uh, I ran in the school board elections. I got elected, as a matter of fact, <laughs> and uh, to the largest school division here uh, in the city, and um, along with another Indigenous colleague of mine, a male, <laughs> um, and he, he got elected as well. But he also was involved with uh, a, a, a sort of a coalition of people, uh, Indigenous people looking at the education issue. And lo and behold, these, are, these were guys. I thought, wow, that's good. I'm glad the guys are going to do some work. <laughs> and uh, so, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll do my stint on the school board and see what we can do there. The idea for uh, a high school came about as well as an elementary school came about. But it had to go through, of course, that biggest system, you know, the uh, Winnipeg School Division number one. I'll just tell you one story here. It was at a school board meeting. Usually we'd met on a Tuesday night weekly. These meetings would take place. And uh, the, the community can come and do presentations. And so... It just so happened that the um, the guys decided to come and do a presentation to the school board. I remember <laughs> uh, I used to sit across from Bill. He, he'd sit, and I, you know, so I could see him and I can still keep eye contact with him. And the guys came in, people from our community came in. They brought their drum, a big drum, and they decided to play the drum. Uh, sing a song, an Indigenous song. <laughs> and I, I remember looking across to Bill, and, and I was looking at all the other school trustees, and, and I, you couldn't even hear a pin drop in that place. They were just, they were totally, they didn't know what to do. Mm. You know, should we call the police? Should we do, <laughs> what do we do? What did they do? They didn't do anything. You just sat there and... They had to listen to to them talk about uh, the need for our school. The Children of the Earth High School has now been open for over three decades. Kathy Mallett wasn't able to play a direct role in the negotiations, an experience that made her question the kind of role she wanted to play. Because as a trustee, mm-hmm. it would be a conflict of interest. Oh, right. okay. See, Bill and I were... Yeah. trustees, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're sitting on the other side. Got it. And I can tell you, I felt weird sitting on the other side of the fence where those guys, you know, I should have been there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I had, to, uh, I had to work out the four years that we were going to sit on this board. Yeah. And I think after the first year, I decided that no way was I going to rerun in this, this again. Even when you started telling the story, you kind of there was a little bit of a derisive laugh that you that you had when you were talking about you and Bill and others kind of running for political office. I wonder if that was just specific to that experience or like has there been a movement to try to get more Indigenous people elected and is that useful at all? Yeah, I think there has been. I mean, 
we might have a first premier of our province, um, you know, a First Nation person. The month after we spoke, Wab Canoe was elected premier of Manitoba. I mean, we did have a, a Métis premier at one time back in the early days of, of Winnipeg development. He was a Métis guy, and uh, um, John Norquay was his name. We have a few folks now in, you know, got elected, and it's slow. It's very been very, very slow. And we, we even always talked about even having our own Indigenous party. You know, that's been talked about over the years. Hasn't gone anywhere, <laughs> you know. And so it was like either join a political party, uh, make some inroads there, or get yourself elected. I mean, 90,000 is not a small constituency. No, yeah. no. So this is Logan here, right? right? And we're going, this was south, you said? No, that was north. north. Okay. Yeah. So we're east. going east. Got it. Mm-hmm. Back towards Main Street. Towards Main Street, yeah. Um, but to get to True North Square, we could take Princess, probably. Okay. At the end of our tour, Owen Taves showed me a site he says exemplifies a 21st century struggle over the future of the inner city. Uh, So we're on Hargrave. Where are we heading? We're heading to True North Square, which is the kind of the most recent instance of gentrification in what Centre Venture and True North refer to as the Sports, Hospitality and Entertainment District in downtown Winnipeg. Sounds fancy. It's very fancy. (laughs) I, you know, in all the years I've come here to visit, I have never heard of True North Square. How long has it been around? couple years, just a couple years. Uh, is that it right there? Well, we'll go into it. Okay. We'll go into it, yeah. So True North Square is a privately owned public space. <laughs> You're not allowed to do very much in there. We can see it now. So this is owned by True, in part by True North, but also by a couple of billionaire families, the Richardson family um, and the Gagliardi family. Richardson are quite well known in this part of town. Right. They're like one of the longest, you know, tycoon families of Winnipeg. And the Gagliardi family are are a billionaire family from BC. Um, So it's really like some of the richest people in the country are invested in this real estate here. Yeah, we can go in here. Um, It looks beautiful. True North is the Chipman family. They're not quite billionaires as far as I know, but... They own the Winnipeg Jets NHL hockey team. And part of their business plan has been to <clears throat> invest in real estate around the, the hockey arena. So the hockey arena is behind us here. So this is luxury apartments and retail and office space. So right across the street where these concrete pillars are, that's Carlton Street. And that, that was where the Carlton Inn was until they came up with this idea. So the city of Winnipeg has an urban redevelopment authority called Center Venture. Center Venture describes themselves on their website as, quote, an arm's-length agency of the city of Winnipeg whose mandate is to provide leadership in the planning, development, coordination, and implementation of projects and activities in the downtown. Center Venture expedites development in Winnipeg's downtown by supporting private-public cooperation and innovative partnerships, they write. 
Center Venture created this as a tax increment financing zone. What does that mean? So <laughs> it's a terrible, it's a very mind-numbing name deliberately. Um, and what it means is that in, instead of paying property taxes into general revenues and for instance funding schools and hospitals, property owners in this area um, pay into a special fund that's controlled by Center Venture and they spend it on what they call investment protection. In a lot of ways what investment protection has meant here has, has been redrawing these kind of lines of urban apartheid in Winnipeg. And what I mean by that is there's a long history of where indigenous peoples are welcome in the city according to, to landlords and the police and other business owners and property owners. Earlier in our tour, Owen Taves told me about the history of politicians and businesses investing their money and attention in the suburbs rather than the inner city. But in recent years, he says, they've shifted their attention back to the city centre. But part of the, re the requirement for <clears throat> capital to invest back in the city centre, after so many years of disinvestment and of disparaging the inner city, is the removal of, the, of people living here. And um, first and foremost, <clears throat> poor and working class Indigenous peoples, right? Because there is this um, long-standing culture in Winnipeg, <clears throat> um, of settler colonialism and the idea that um, the presence of indigenous peoples is bad for business, right? As part of this kind of racial capitalist um, order here that's existed for 150 years or more. In this case, he points to two hotels that used to occupy this area. So the Carlton Inn and then uh, also the St. Regis Hotel on Smith Street, both became like quite relatively affordable hotels where First Nations people were staying because they were in the city to access healthcare. Coming from the north. Often, right? Often, yeah. Or other First Nations. And so the Carlton Inn was seen as a threat to True North's investment here, right? So the presence of First Nations people at the Carlton Inn was seen as not something that would be tolerated by True North. Um, so Center Venture demolished the Carlton Inn and the St. Regis Hotel, wiped away several hundred units of relatively affordable temporary housing for people see seeking health care in the city, and never promised to. Uh, rebuild it or relocate people or, or offer any kind of compensation. Was there any kind of consultation with people? Like, no, absolutely no, not. Um, <clears throat> the city had no consultations on this? No, there was no consultation. Um, so the city used Center Venture, which is a private corporation that can make deals independent of any kind of democratic process, to buy and tear down these hotels. So whatever happened to people who used to stay in those hotels when they needed health care in the city? Yeah, I mean, so um, I talked to Duncan Mercury about this when I was writing Stolen City. Duncan Mercury is a Cree and Métis writer and the former poet laureate of Winnipeg. He really described, like, just the way that communities move from place to place, sort of like as the city's wrecking ball is destroying these community spaces, right? So, like, as the Main Street Strip was destroyed by the city, as all those hotels and cafes and restaurants and bars were bulldozed and the Niganan plan was not built, people started to move from the Main Street Strip south of Portage, right? <clears throat> so creating new communities in places like the St. Regis and Carlton Inns. And then as these places have been demolished, you know, other people have gone to other nearby hotels. And there is sort of like a, a bit of a gentrification frontier, in my view, like along Ellis Avenue, where there still are healthcare sort of based hotels for, for people to stay in, um, but right, sort of right up against luxury condos that are being built there. I want to just ask you before we end off about the title of your book, Stolen City. <clears throat> Can you just 
talk about where we are in that process. Is this a city that's still being in the process of being stolen, or has it already been stolen? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> that title comes from <clears throat> looking at settler colonial dispossession as an ongoing process in the city. Right. Um, <clears throat> so looking at um, yeah, I mean, I look at things like like the destruction of the Carlton Inn and the St. Rita's Hotel as an instance of land theft, right? If we look at people having a claim on land in some informal sense, right? Um, not necessarily in the eyes of the Canadian state, but as creating a, a community there and an embodied claim to space. There's a syst systematic and systemic theft of those lands and, di and displacement of those communities that's built into like official versions of what the city's future should be. What do you think the city's future should be? I mean, how, how radically different would it be than what, what you live in right now? Right. I mean, things like the Niganan plan should be, should be funded, like rail relocation should be funded. I mean, that's partly why like, I'm, I'm interested in studying the history of, of inner city social movements. They leave these sort of blueprints for future action that are still relevant today. for your grandkids in this city what's your hope for them well <laughs> I think that um, I think it's great if if one can leave a legacy for your kids right whether um, it's some kind of wealth and I don't mean it's just money wealth but I mean uh, a spiritual wealth uh, you know just um Something that they can be proud of, you know, to be uh, pr proud of who they are as an Indigenous person, to get their education. Education has always been important to me. Even I went back to school when I was in my 50s wow. to complete my university degree, you know, because I took that 25 years off. And then I finally went back in the early 2000s. Uh, and I always harp at them that, you know, education is so important for our people is to help us all, not just yourself, but to all of us. It's just a joy to talk to you. Thank you. Very inspiring. On Ideas, you've been listening to my conversations with Kathy Mallett and Owen Taves about the history and future of inner-city Winnipeg. Kathy Mallett is the co-editor with Shauna McKinnon of Indigenous Resistance and Development in Winnipeg, 1960-2000. Owen Taves is the author of Stolen City, Racial Capitalism and the Making of Winnipeg and Island Falls. This episode was produced by Pauline Holdsworth. Ideas is a broadcast and a podcast. If you like the episode you just heard, check out our vast archive, where you can find more than 300 of our past episodes. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nicola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.